0: Hello. This is Rabbi Mark Soloway. Welcome to A Dash of Drush, weekly reflections on our world through the lens of Torah. Well, those of you listen in every week and I'm very grateful for those of you who do. May have noticed it's been a couple of weeks break here at this point in A Dash of Drush and Sari Levy, who uh, has been the producer of these and really was the inspiration for me starting this podcast at all, said to me the other day, where are your podcasts? And a couple of other people did too. And then we had this idea, actually she had this idea, that we would kind of flip things and rather than me kind of interviewing somebody, she would sort of interview me because Sari realized that she had some, some burning questions. So, Sari Levy is here with me, and I'm going to hand over to her.
1: Yes, um, it's nice to um, it's nice to be here. Thank you. Um, yeah, I thought it was funny when you said that you, you didn't have anything to say. I thought, oh my god, well, I have lots of questions. So let me come over. Um, you know, and I thought, well, it'll sort of be like, you know, everything you always wanted to ask about sex, but we're afraid to. But it's really more like everything you always wanted to ask about havdalah, but we're afraid to. And, um, you know, I have a million questions, I think, sort of naive questions, you know, gaps in my understanding of Judaism that are probably a little embarrassing. But I thought, well, you know, I'll just ask and I'll see what um, Rabbi Mark has to say. So thank you.
0: (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for pushing me. Yeah, yeah. But we're not going to talk about sex.
1: We're not, we're going to talk about uh, mundane hodala. Yeah. So my first question, my first question, passage with Havdalah. And um, I've always sort of loved the ritual. Um, I'm not sure
0: everyone listening knows what Havdalah is.
1: Good, let's talk about what Havdalah is. Why don't you why don't you start there and then I'll ask my question? Well, the word
0: Havdalah means separation and it, and lahavdil the to separate from one thing to another. And Havdalah is a ritual that we do at the end of Shabbat that makes a distinction between between the holiness of Shabbat and the ordinariness of the week, basically. And it's a ritual that involves you know, a multi-wick candle and grape juice or wine or, and some spices, basically.
1: So it's always been some, a ritual that I've loved and sort of one that has carried through my entire life from when I was a child. Um, and I think that one of the reasons I love it um, has something to do with what your um, last guest, Mary Ellis, Elsa. Or Elsa, okay. Elsa, I have to edit that. Um, said about ritual being sort of this very feminine, having a very feminine quality. Um, but I, and I also think that along with that, Havdala at least has this very sort of tribal quality. So you have this darkness and you have a torch and you have the passing around of alcohol and you have, you know, these. Um, and my family was always um, rose water, but you have some sort of like fragrant spices that you're smelling. And so it feels very ancient in a way. And it got me thinking about where the origins of some of our rituals come from. And it seems to me that logical that we didn't just, they didn't just all sort of spring up at the, um, you know, when when we became Jews, that some of them had to have come from more ancient sort of pagan traditions. And I'm wondering what you know or what we know about the origin of some of our oldest rituals and whether or not they sort of predate Judaism.
0: Uh, that's a good question. And I'd, I'm I, I'm certain that many of our rituals do have pagan origins because very, it's a, it was very earth-based. The ancient Israelites, pre-Jewish ancient Israelites were definitely a, an earth-based and an agricultural-based uh, people. I think Havdalah is a is a later, from what I understand, it's much more kind of rabbinic. It doesn't have ancient origins in the same way. However, um, of course, anything to do with fire and anything to do with the the senses and the smells and the earth is all very much in that in that realm. I think that some some of our rituals, like you know the shaking of the lulav and the etrog and those things, which are very, very ancient uh, biblical rituals, for sure had a more a kind of pagan um, origin to, to them. Havdalah though, I'm not, I'm not certain of the origins. I mean, the Talmud talks about the idea of saying a special blessing, you know, when there are three stars in the sky, when Shabbat has, has really ended of saying a, a blessing of distinction and there is a way that that blessing can just be incorporated into the Maariv, which is the evening service. But the, but then it says no; it should be made on a on a alakos, on a cup, meaning with a cup of of wine. And then there should be fire, and you know. So it was it was added in this way. But I was very um, moved. But I wrote a blog about a, a different kind of havdalah. When I was in Israel, I happened to be in Israel at the transition between Yom HaZikaron memorial day and Yom Haatzmaut Israeli independence day and there was this amazing group called Beit Tefila Yisraeli, which is a very modern kind of um community in Tel Aviv that did a Havdalah to mark the distinction between memory and celebrating independence and so that the, the the tools I mean the, the the way ritual I'm fascinated by the way rituals can be adapted to different to different concepts or to different um context, rather, I should say. And so there's something about that. But I don't, the actual ancient origin of havdalah—it was a very long answer that didn't answer your question at all, typically. But.
1: No, I mean, I think the question really was, what what do we do? What parts of our sort of spiritual practice predate Judaism and, and what do we know about that? And I think that you sort of alluded to the Lulav and the Etrog being sort of more ancient. I think that that's really, interesting to me, I think partially because it seems to me that if you're an alien and you walk into um, a Jewish uh, Shabbat service and and you're listening to um, the Parshot and you're kind of listening to the way that God is telling the, the Israelites to practice Judaism and to build these really sort of beautiful almost like a palace that you know is going to be the temple and bringing animals to be sacrificed and grain and oil you would have an understanding of a Judaism that's extremely ritualistic extremely sensual there's incense clouds of incense there's dancing there's there's timbrels there's music and the Judaism that we practice today is. In many ways, sterilized, and I guess my curiosity is really about what that kind of um, pulling back and and pushing the religion into something that's more intellectual and um, less kind of tangible has done to our the the quality of our prayer and the way that we connect with with God.
0: The simple answer to that, um, I mean, it's not a simple answer at all, but. I'm actually reading this great book called *The Orchard* by by Yochi Brandis, which is a new novel which is based on the sort of early um, generations of of rabbis, and they're the ones who did all of this. I mean, some of them were incredibly creative and brilliant, and deeply spiritual. But really, um, the first generations after the destruction the destruction of the sec- second Temple, which was destroyed by the Romans in in seventy of the of the common era. Um, after that, there was this sort of like a whole completely and utterly different paradigm of what it meant to be Jewish. And so, we are all heirs to rabbinic Judaism, we're not heirs to biblical Judaism because it's a completely different Judaism. And so, the rabbi, you know, many scholars would say, well, th- there wouldn't be any Judaism if it hadn't been for the ingenuity and creativity of the rabbis because they completely reconceived what, what it meant to be Jewish. So, the altar. In the temple became the, the 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 table where we have a Shabbat or a holiday meal, you know, and the the um, the animals for the sacrifice. Because you know, the altar became our own heart. Prayer became the replacement of sacrifice. All these things are, are, we've talked about before in previous podcasts. But the but the 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 sense is that much of that was deeply deeply intellectual. I mean, the the debates, and you get such a great. Um, sense of it in this book the orchard the different kind of um, world views and the different ways in which like what are we gonna how are we gonna um, perpetuate and how are we gonna transmit what we most care about in this in this religion it became like an intellectual exercise about d- defining and redefining and reinterpreting the laws of the Torah that could not be applied in the same way without there being a temple in Jerusalem and so I think yes a lot a lot was a lot of the visceral connection. And the the embodied nature of what it meant to be Jewish was 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 definitely kind of lost. And there's lots of ways in which that's been uh, in some communities refound. But if you go into many traditional synagogues, it's not you don't get the same sense, the same sensory kind of experience that you're describing. And so yes, a ritual like havdalah is fascinating in that sense because it is it's something that's very much enlivening all of our senses as we make that transition between. Uh, Shabbat and and a new week beginning.
1: It seems to me that when you sort of pull prayer up into your Prayer or pra- practice is a better word. If you're if you're pulling religious practice up into something that is is purely, really in your in your mind. Not that we don't don't do do any rituals with our body. Of course, we have talit and 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 um and wrapped um, to and we have ritual. But I think that the level of ritual is 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 so much less. There are so much so many fewer um, demands on us um, from kind of like an experiential perspective, and so. Um, so then it sort of raises this question well what does it mean to effectively have establish a connection between your mind and sort of your conception of God and one of the things that I know that you've kind of mentioned in the past is that the the, the verb to fila is reflexive and that's something that I find really really interesting what does it mean to- for us to have moved ritual from something that we participate in to something that is not really even between us and God, but maybe it's just between us and ourselves. And what does it mean to connect with God? What does it mean to pray? Um, What is this sort of meditative quality of of prayer that we now practice almost in place of sacrifices and ritual and these very, very outward facing um, acts? Mm
0: Yeah, it's a great question, and, and of course, for so many people, it's such a barrier, because in a sense, they people may have been more engaged. You know, some people, I mean, people um, had a really interesting conversation with someone recently about the, you know, mo- many people in this generation are very pulled into a sort of, you know, philosophically in- pulled into this idea of secular humanism. Where there's not really, you know, you know, like Sam Harris, you know, people like that. Where, where the, the I mean, that's the the, the debate. Um, I mentioned Sam Harris because he's he's one of Sarah's favorite podcasters, and we got to see him live. But um, the 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 whole notion um, for many people is such a barrier, prayer, because prayer implies that you have some kind of relationship with some uh, higher being, which many people don't or don't even know how to begin to approach that or very defiantly don't believe in that. I also had a really interesting conversation yesterday with someone um, who was brought up in the, in the Hasidic world and is no longer but is still kind of connected to it. And, and Hasidic, The tradition for Hasidic men when they pray is they put on a girdle, which is like this usually black silky kind of belt. That they tie around their waist before they pray. You may have seen that in Chabad and so on. And the idea of it is I mean, I shouldn't, I don't know exactly because I've never experienced it, but my understanding of it is that it somehow is about um, either elevating or taking out your kind of sexuality. Out of, out of prayer so it's like in a sense making it it's around your waist so it's like separating out you know the, your sexual center to the to the rest of you and this guy I was talking to who still does that um, and finds it a very important and meaningful part of his prayer experience and I said like why would you like out of all of the things you would keep why would you keep that because my understanding is that that pressure be a much fuller experience. We should bring our sexuality and our sensuality and our emotions and our intellect and everything, and, and you know, integrate it all. And then he said to me, he said, we used to joke back, you know, back in the day that the the Hasidim, you know, wear the girdle because they're they're separating out, you know, the lower and 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 the and the upper kind of thing, and the Misnagdim, which you know, the the famously the word that the, the opponents of Hasidim wear ties because they're cutting off their heads and their <laughs> hearts, you know Because this idea of putting this thing around your throat yeah. as, Which is really the our kind of expression and in many parts of the Hasidic world uh, There's ne- never been a culture of wearing ties So like this kind of like are we are we cutting pieces off of ourselves when we pray? Are we sort of opening up all the channels so we can can pray in a more integrated way, but so I think those two things for me are, are important. Like on the one hand, the the incredible barrier, like a ritual that's involving your whole body, whatever you believe or don't believe about the nature of the world or the nature of anything outside the physical world, you can somehow participate in a ritual. But when it comes to when the ritual has basically become prayer, so the, on the one hand, the barrier is like, well, I I'm not going to pray because I don't know who I'm praying to. And then the other thing is like if prayer is um like you were saying more reflexive then bringing out in the same way that a ritual is kind of embodied like bringing our whole beings into it, our body and our mind and our heart and our you know sexuality and all of it just bringing it into the sort of experience of prayer because um you know famously I'm sure I've mentioned this before um on a previous podcast but you know famously it's, many people have the ritual when you mention a tali and we're wearing a tali and tali has four tzitzit the fringes on the four corners of the tali and before we say the shema we bring together those four those four corners and hold them against our heart and um, the Baal Shem Tov, um, famously said that we before we can say shema which is declaring God one we have to first declare ourselves one so the four corners are symbolic of all of the fringes of our own Self, the pieces of ourselves that we reject or dislike or you know want to ignore or abandon, you know, and so we bring them all together, it's as if to say, like prayer has to be our full, our, our full selves bring it into it. And if it, even if we don't believe in any kind of notion of God, there's still a sense of like having a ritual, you know, in traditional circles, even three times a day, where I stop what I'm doing and just bring in my my full being into this reflexive um, self-reflective kind of um, ritual of, um, I don't know. So what is it?
1: So I want to talk about prayer because it's something that um, I struggle with. I find my mind wandering and you and I were just talking about uh, meditation before we sat down. Um, I think many of us are um, trying to incorporate more Eastern traditions into our lives one of those for many of us is meditation and that is trying to still the mind quiet the mind To sort of push the ego away Could you talk about what it feels like to pray? well and what that means and how do you know if you're in Prayer in in, in the in in a in I get the right, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's a fuzzy term But 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 how do we pray? <laughs>
0: Oh, yo, yo. you really think I know the answer to that. <laughs> and you think I know what good prayer is? I don't know if I know what good prayer is. It, yeah. is. What, I, what I do know is that for me, it's become incredibly important to have the, 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 the discipline and the practice of a daily prayer ritual, you know, and I think that is very connected to um, to meditation. People talk, when they talk about meditating, they talk about having a meditation practice. The word practice implies you know, it's it's always going to be kind of some of a work in progress. It's never like you s- you sit on your mat or your your uh, meditation cushion or whatever, and you immediately go into this sort of transcendental kind of blissful state. Of course you don't, because the mind doesn't work like that. Most of us have have minds that just never stop <laughs> chattering away and telling all kinds of, of stories, and and we're so easily distracted by everything and all of that. And that's true of prayer. and It's true of meditation. It's not about like the assumption that as soon as we sit down to pray or to meditate like some everything changes but I think the idea of um, a daily practice is that you become sort of habituated so it's you know for me at this point in my life it's like it would feel as 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 incomplete as like going out of the house without having brushed my teeth to, to, to not have to have I've done my morning prayers and put on my tefillin every morning, and so on. And uh, sometimes I do that. Like this morning, I happened to go on a, on a beautiful um, hours mountain bike ride with a friend, and got to the top and sat by a river and put on my tefillin and and did my morning uh, shacharit, my morning service up there. And that's that. Fit, that's one very powerful way to pray. Sometimes I'm just sort of like going through the motions, and I'm in, in a rush, and I'm doing the whole thing in like 15 minutes. And it's you know, so it's like there are days where it's just like totally perfunctory and um, not connected. And then, you know, every once in a while, there's like, ah, I really tuned into, uh, again, back to that sort of reflexive thing. I really tuned into like a deep, something that I really deeply desire. And like, how am I gonna make that manifest in my life? Or I've really tuned into a sense of profound gratitude for something, or I've really tuned into just a sense of like, um extraordinary appreciation of of the natural world around or whatever and all of that to me is part of, of of prayer you know um I saw this beautiful um documentary last thursday about john muir who's who was this sort of i mean the film is called the unruly mystic this idea that he he was someone who really found so much spirituality in nature, but one of the things that was that was talked about um in that in that film in in relationship to Um, to having a relationship with nature was just that um, someone mentioned, Reverend Matthew Fox who's a Christian mystic, mentioned uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel's idea of radical amazement. Radical amazement is where you experience such profound um, well, amazement obviously but you experience something so profound Uh, in the natural sense of awe in the world but it's not just an awe that's like you just go, wow. It's a sense of awe that inspires you to either act in the world, um, you know, to, to, as Matthew Fox said in the film, like it, it, insp- it should, it, it, radical amazement means you you have awe and the awe inspire you have awe about the natural world and the awe inspires you to really do something about preserving the natural world. Or awe, 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 the awe can be... Um, a, a, a motivation or a, an inspiration for for deepening prayer, you know. So it's those things seem related to me.
1: It's interesting that the sort of scenarios that come to your mind when you feel that like you're most deeply in a prayer are when you're alone and sort of these these solitude. And I I just say mm-hmm. that because you know we live and I don't I mean, know I, if I, that's I, true. Partly
0: it's because I'm literally you know an hour before meeting with you I was in sure. that place. But. but I
1: think if you asked a lot of people, especially where we live in Boulder, how do you feel like you connect spiritually? I think many, many people would say, look, I feel this incredible spiritual connection when I'm alone in the woods or when I'm kayaking or biking, whatever it is, right? So I guess I come back to this, look, we've kind of replaced biblical Judaism, which was very um, sensory, very action-oriented with something that's supposed to be uh, intellectual connection between ourselves and God. And how do we sort of do that in community, in, in a group of people praying. Like how do you, what's the practice like to effectively pray when you're in a group of people in a room?
0: I think this, it, it can be very challenging and for some people it doesn't work. But for many of us, th- there's a power of community. There's a power of a community singing together, which I think for some people is, is a very, very deep and important part of prayer. There's a power of the idea of a collective consciousness coming together, where my prayers as an individual are somehow fused with the the, the, the collective prayers that we might have, um, and some of sometimes those are specific and sometimes they're very kind of general in a sense, but. Um, and I think, and I think that relationship is. I mean, the rabbis talk about that all the time. The relationship between the, between the yachid, the individual, and the tzibor, the community, and how that interplays. The idea that you have in a traditional prayer service, a silent Amidah, the central prayer, prayer is like silent and private. And then there's a repetition in the community, as if to say, there's this extraordinary fusing together of the individual and the and and the and the collective, as I just said, and. Um, the other piece of it is that sometimes we some people are really carried by being part of something bigger than themselves, you know. I mean the whole cliche of the the whole is greater than the sum of its individual parts and there's something that can happen. I'm not saying it always happens, yeah, yeah. but there's something that can happen in a community prayer.
1: One of the things that um when you were talking about what's the name of the sash again that the some of the, the Gürtel. it's like dish for a belt basically a girtle. Girtle. Oh. Yeah. um it's interesting i i think that um i think in in many ways i could see where it's a it's a physical reminder to concentrate and not to get lost in our bodies um, and then obviously the other the other piece of this is um that you mentioned was or do we want to use our entire body and our, our sexual energy in our prayer and you know obviously I don't I don't have an answer but the 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 Christian tradition does seem to fall more on the side of um, separation of some of the physical with this uh, physical and this and the spiritual and um to bring it back to Havdalah a little bit quickly um you know there's this sort of um part of the, the, the Havdalah prayer that's sort of the, a, a pre-prayer, I don't know what you want to call it, talks about salvation, I um, can't remember, I think I jotted down some of the...
0: Yeah, there's a, pa- a whole paragraph before the actual blessings over the the wine and the spices and the candle flame, there is a, a paragraph that has many verses from Isaiah and other places uh, right, and this that is, talk you know, about salvation. I trust
1: it. the God of my salvation, yeah. um, he has been to me a salvation, I will lift the cup of salvation, and it seems to me that, you know, salvation, I've always associated very strongly with the Christian tradition, that there's this idea that we're going to eventually be saved. Um, but yet yeah, here it sort of appears in Havdalah and in um, other places too, not not the salvation piece, but there are sort of more Christian ideas that, you know, the girdle with the sal- you know separation of, of the sexual and the spiritual. But what is salvation doing in Judaism and what is it doing in, Hav- in the Havdalah service? <laughs>
0: That's a, I mean, that's a whole other podcast right there. We can maybe do another one, but I mean, I would say salvation is is hugely Jewish. I mean, there's a whole idea of Yeshua. I mean, which of course is the root of the name Jesus is a, is a very very Jewish concept. Becomes all over the prophetic writings, and there's these subtly different things. There's salvation and there's redemption. Redemption is Gula, and salvation is Yeshua. There's subtle differences between them. I think Gula is a more collective experience, and Yeshua, I think maybe, can be an, an individual experience. Going we're, back, to we're that, not
1: waiting for our souls to be saved. I don't. It's. I don't understand the concept.
0: I mean, partly it's related to to a messianic concept, the idea that there is going to be a, a future time where the world will be redeemed and we will be uh, both, you know, collectively and and uh, individually saved from the You know suffering that is what the human condition is so much of the time and all of the all of the the, 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 you know the conflict and the the terrible um ways in which our civilization is killing itself that somehow there's that idea but you know so you know i was recently just had this you know horribly sad but not tragic loss of of irene rosenshine who was a holocaust survivor who survived Auschwitz. And she used to tell me this this uh, story that, you know, once I asked her, like what how she accounted for their survival. And she said that she said there was always a rumor going around the camp that Mashiach was coming, that the Messiah was going to come and save them and he was going to come next Tuesday. So they would keep going till Tuesday and then Mashiach didn't come on Tuesday. And then they said, Oh no, 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 he's coming next Wednesday. And then, and it would like every time, It would just keep them going for the next few days this sense of of hope and i think that if you look through jewish history the times that there's been the greatest sort of suffering and persecution uh, uh, of jews has been the there's been the most fervor of a sort of messianic consciousness that's talking about salvation so it's connected and and what that's doing in habdallah which was really the other part of your question is that there is a sense that Shabbat is Shabbat is Ma'ain ba, It's a taste of the world to come, and we're about to end Shabbat and go back into the week. And it's like the week can be really hard. We, you know, we're eking out a living. Like life feels, you know, it's c- coming from a world where I think life was really hard. People people could barely make ends meet, and so this idea that you brought in that kind of consciousness of salvation into a ritual where you were about to start a new week and you didn't know what that week was gonna gonna bring after the, the temporary bliss of Shabbat you know it's that, I think that's what it's doing there
1: I, Shabbat's interesting the other the other thing that's always puzzled me about Shabbat and again this is probably its own podcast too but I'm just here to give you ideas um, but I think it's sort of beautiful this idea that you get another soul on Shabbat, the neshama Yatira, and what is our soul in the first place? What does Judaism tell us about what our soul is? Why would we get another one? Is the soul eternal? Like, like, how do we define it in Judaism? And um, what does it mean to have a second one in the age of the Mashiach?
0: <laughs> the soul is, uh, again, you know, the, the Torah itself doesn't really talk about a soul. There's not, I mean, there's a few a few places that people interpret to be referring to a soul but really there's the word nefesh which is really talking about a life and it's not actually necessarily connected to a soul it's really a later idea i mean the kabbalists really have five levels of a human soul where nefesh is the lower one which is more like the animal soul and then there's ruach which is more like spirit and then the shama, which is like the the soul and the piece of us that's a bit more connected to some higher reality, and then there's chaya um, which is like the the real life force, and then there's yichida, which means you know unification, which is the part of us that's completely connected to God. So there's something about those five levels of of soul that are the idea that we have you know a a body the nefesh is really the when I said animal soul it's really the you know the the part of soul consciousness that really is connected to sleeping and eating and sexuality and all of those 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 things. And then um, the idea, really, I think, from a rabbinic and certainly from a mystical perspective, is that every time we do a mitzvah, it's about helping us elevate the animal consciousness to a, to a higher level of consciousness. But soul is, um, I mean, it, it, when you talk about Shabbat and the neshama the additional soul, it's I, I you know I, I I don't see that in a kind of literal like literally we get a second a second soul I think it's this idea of a we, what we get is an expanded consciousness like Shabbat is this day that is um you know whether in the imagination or reality or whatever it's like this incredibly powerful day and the idea is that we um, during the course of a, of a week where we're just running around and we're like totally addicted to our devices and there's texts coming in and we're just uh, like crazy. We, 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 we lose the connection with ourselves. So how I always see the neshama yatera is like it's an, op- it's an opportunity to reconnect with the fullness of who we can be. Nashama, the word neshama, which is the most common word used for soul, is exactly the same word with different vowels as neshima, which is breath. So the idea that breath and soul are connected to each other the idea that somehow by you know Breathing deeply as Shabbat begins. We sort of are, 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 are Expanding our our capacity to be more fully who we need to be in this world. I think that's that's what soul is to me What do you think should we uh, should we call it a day and yeah, if you
1: if you ever uh, skip a week again, I'll come with more questions
0: <laughs> What do you think Sarah? should we put this up live? No, (laughs) I think I'm going to anyway. (laughs)
1: No, I think you should. Just because you're the producer, you don't get to. No, and it's a little, it's a little little incoherent. But you know, there's so many things that I think that you have so much to say on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good to hang out with you. (laughs) Good to hang out with you.
0: Thank you for listening to a dash and drush. We will see you next time.